0: Hey there, folks. You are listening to Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett. I'm joined here by Simon Foster. This week, we've got a very big show. We've got one of the biggest TV launches of the year. It's the Sex and the City Revival series. It's called And Just Like That. I'm taking a look at a film that's highly anticipated by me, at least. It's Wes Anderson's new, The French Dispatch. And there's also the David Fincher movie essay TV series, Voir, which has dropped on Netflix. It's an interesting one. Simon, what are you talking about this week?
1: Oh, dear Dan Barrett. I've got Dear Evan Hansen, which is the new musical based on the Broadway hit, which is copping flack from all directions. I've got an interesting different take on it. And we also go back to Raccoon City, where the crazy people are in Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City in cinemas now. Um, yeah, very big show, plus a very special guest. So let's get on with it. Let's do it. This is not like TV-only battle. television. Teacher,
2: mother, secret lover. That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it.
0: Hey, Simon Foster, this is Screen Watching. My name, Dan Barrett. You're Simon Foster.
1: It's good to be here this week, Dan, because we're right in the middle of the, or we're sort of leaning into the, the summer movie-going season, the the period where people get to catch up on all those movies they wanted to see, whether it's at the cinema or on the small screen. Um, Some big stuff coming down the the pipe from from our uh, film distributor friends, all the big Boxing Day releases, plus some major, major news out of Netflix with Don't Look Up coming around very soon as well. Look, there's just so much happening in the world of screen watching. Look, there is. Like, this week's
0: show would be ordinarily a pretty big show, but the next couple of weeks, just monsters and, frankly... We're struggling to be able to keep on top of this all because there is so much stuff that is worth talking about. We
1: had something We had, we had had something very close to a production meeting just prior to this podcast where we tried to sort out what the <laughs> hell we're going to do the next two weeks, which is quite exciting. We've never had a production meeting for the podcast, so hey, it might be a new direction being organised. Something which we didn't tease at the top here, but is absolutely something which I think is going to be of
0: huge interest to at least, I don't know, three of our listeners. No, there'll be lots of people interested in this one. This is a really good interview. I had a chat yesterday. This is real bucket list stuff, Simon. I got to speak to a star from the TV sitcom Cheers. Uh,
1: Now, what many of you probably realize by now, certainly the regular listeners will know that Cheers is a defining moment in the education and maturation of one Dan Barrett. Um, Tell us, who did you get to speak to and why? I had a chat with B.B. Newerth. People know Bibi
0: Newirth from all sorts of movies and TV shows over the years, but she's still yes. probably best known playing Lilith Crane on Frasier. Oh, sorry, on Cheers and then later on Frasier. So I'm I'm, just, I'm getting tongue wow. even thinking about trying to say this out loud. It's just too much. So <laughs> I had a chat with I had a chat with Ms. Newirth. We're going to play that on a podcast this week, so you get to hear that as our middle bit throughout the podcast. But we have a chat about. Not only Cheers, so we do talk about Cheers for quite a fair bit in the thing, because there's no way I couldn't let that happen, but also she's currently voicing a character in this new animated series called Ultra City Smiths. It's playing on AMC+. Plus. It is an under-the-radar show. There aren't a lot of reviews around about it. There's not much discussion happening about it. And let me tell you, people, you are sleeping on one of the best TV shows of this year. It is absolutely wow. wild. And we're going to talk about that as we come out of the interview in a short while. But folks... We've got a lot of reviews to get through. I think it's important we do that. Let's dive right in.
1: It stinks.
0: Okay, Simon, shall I do the French dispatch? Is that where we're at?
1: Yeah, let's kick off. Let's go to uh, Paris and go to the French dispatch. I wish we had another production meeting.
2: It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer, Jr., transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming.
0: What do you do when you walk into a cinema to see one of your favorite director's new movies only to leave the cinema disappointed because you didn't like it? And what's worse is when everyone else is rapturous about the film and it leaves you just a little bit cold. That certainly happened to me watching Wes Anderson's film Moonrise Kingdom back in 2012. It just felt kind of flat to me. And then 2014's Grand Budapest Hotel was good, but I didn't really love it in a way the rest of the world seems to have. This from a filmmaker who I connected with so heavily through the late 90s into the 2000s, the O's, the noughts. Films like Rushmore, The Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, and yes, even the Darjeeling Limited are dear to me. Anderson, he hasn't made a live-action film since 2014's Budapest, so walking into his latest film, The French Dispatch, had me feeling really uneasy. Beside the name of the film and knowing it had something to do with the newspaper, I didn't know anything about the movie going in, I was there entirely off the strength of my once connection to Wes Anderson, and walking out of the film, I really don't know how I feel exactly. The French Dispatch, it's an anthology film of what's maybe four and a half stories, You have four key stories in the film, with an additional wraparound story about the newspaper itself and its founder. Played by Bill Murray, the newspaper's been his life's work, and it's the creation of a regular periodical that brings together the most interesting stories of people and communities from across France. It's essentially a Euro New Yorker magazine, and it's inserted into a fictional Midwestern American newspaper. But upon his death, which we see in the film... Uh, his will is uncovered, and it states that the newspaper will be dissolved, and the subscribers will receive the remainder of their subscription fees back upon his death. And this means that the latest issue of the French Dispatch will be its last. And so the four anthology stories we see are the main feature stories of that last issue. In the first story, we've got Owen Wilson starring as a cycling reporter who compares the past and present of what's a fictitious city. It's a fairly light and breezy intro into the film. The second's got Benicio Del Toro as an inmate in a prison, who becomes a celebrated artist, with thanks to his muse, played by Leah Sido, and when he's discovered by Adrian Brody, he becomes the hottest name in art, and the segment builds towards the reveal of his latest work, which may or may not be what Brody and his team of investors had in mind. I got the third story, starring Francis McDormand as a reporter, who's reporting on the rise of some youth revolutionaries, played by Timothy Chalamet, and... Others, I guess. Uh, And she gets a little closer than she probably should have. And then there's the fourth story, which is a really wild story about a kidnapping that stars Jeffrey Wright. It's this fourth story that really packs a punch as it shifts into animated form midway through in a very similar way to the animated sequence you may remember from Kill Bill. Only instead of taking its inspiration from anime, as that film did, this is more of a Tintin-style European manic chase. It's huge fun, and it leaves the film on a high as it concludes and quickly winds up the business literally with the writers putting the finishing touches on the final issue of The French Dispatch. The film itself, like any anthology or any magazine filled with feature stories, it's a mixed bag. Some of the stories you're going to connect with more than others, the Francis McDormand-Timothy Chalamet segment, it sparkled at times for me, but it didn't really quite work for me as a whole, but the rest I really had a blast with. And it's the disjointed nature of this film that left me feeling unsure of how I felt about it. But I do get the sense that this will be a film that I return to a number of times. If, upon the fifth time I watch this, and I have no doubt I will see it at least that many times. I declare it to be his
1: absolute best. It would not be to the shock of me, your erstwhile reviewer. <laughs> I'm fascinated by Wes Anderson. I'm fascinated by your review of this because I know you're much sort of higher on his radar than, than than I am. I'm I'm not. But you you know it's strange. I say that I have a very strange relationship with him because I loved Grand Budapest and. I I uh loved Life Aquatic, but on the third viewing. Um, <laughs> you know what? People seem to
0: hate that movie, and I honestly think that film just requires a few rewatches to really connect with it.
1: Well Yeah. And and but i I mean I'm not absolutely the same with his early stuff. The the Bottle Rocket is one of my favourite films and, and not Bottle Rocket oh, and Rushmore of course and all these wonderful movies. Um I I I'm really struggling to find the interest to go and see the French dispatch because I'm so worried that I'm either going to fall into the oh that was two hours of my life I never get back or I I love it but I'm always consumed by his his visuals more so than any other director and the way that he breaks down the screen and uses color and creates all these different symmetrical images and color patterns and all that sort of stuff on screen and, and it's fascinating to watch but I kind of get that sense that Sometimes, like with Christopher Nolan, he's, it, filmmaking is a, an intellectual exercise for him, less, more, less than a, a narrative art form, and, and um, that could, I can find that a bit cold at times. Um, having said that, I loved, I loved Grand Budapest. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm sitting on the fence with, fence Look, with I this I totally
0: one. get that, and I find it interesting you mention the colour palettes because that is absolutely one of the big things like, a Wes Anderson film brings. So much of this film's in black and white, And that's the thing that really startled me while I was watching it. I wasn't expecting that at all. As I said, I knew next to nothing going into it. So to find that like was, you know, kind of a bit baffling because one of his strengths is the color palette and something like this, which is so rich and vibrant with all these stories being told, it's weird being black and white. And I think maybe that's a bit of a misstep of the film, but one that I was having to overlook because I think the rest of the film holds together pretty well. And as I said, I don't know if I can really review this film until I've seen it that fifth time
1: chalamet is going through his sort of early johnny depp period where he's being cast in everything and people are finding him really interesting and he's lovely to look at and he's proving himself a good actor is is french dispatch going to be sort of high on on um his list of achievements when it all rolls around look i wouldn't imagine so like that's the
0: segment that i think is probably the weakest of the four in there so i don't know like timothy chalamet films Fans will come to the film and probably enjoy what he's doing there. He's kind of fun, and he's got this terrible little European moustache, and he's smoking cigarettes in bed with Francis McDormand, and like that's kind of fun. <laughs> but you know, it's not necessarily an essential Timothy Chalamet work by any means.
1: You mean he hasn't got the um, wildly masculine uh, hair, uh, uh, chin hair that I'm boasting at the moment? This this magnificent piece of. Manliness.
0: I would never phrase it mind. that way, either in a positive or the negative.
1: <laughs> I think our podcast just rolled into E rating territory with my <laughs> masculine mustache.
0: Oh, geez. E for erotic. <laughs> Simon Foster, let, let us move on. What else have you seen this week? You have taken a gander at a big new zombie movie.
1: Yes, yeah, so I saw Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Why are you back here, Claire? Your conspiracies weren't true when we were kids. They're not true now.
2: We need to expose Umbrella. Watch this. I'm afraid, Claire. I'm afraid of what they're going to do to this town. You see, Umbrella, they had an incident. I'm talking Chernobyl, if
1: you know what I mean. People are getting sick. You gotta help us, Claire. Let the world
0: know what's really going on. Simon Foster, I know nothing about this movie. I know what Resident Evil is. Are there many raccoons? Tell me about them.
1: <laughs> it's surprisingly lacking in raccoons, this film, um, zombie or otherwise. Um, we return to the Resident Evil world. Now, I'm going to put a, a, a preclaimer out there. Um, I don't know anything about the Resident Evil universe. I've never played the games. I've seen all the movies, but they have completely sort of um, vagued out in my mind and blend it all into one film. And that's fine. I, I quite enjoy it. And I certainly had a blast watching uh, Mili Jovovich in the role of Alice up front there doing what she does best. Um, she's an ass-kicking legend. But the big surprise here is that Welcome to Raccoon City, which takes the, the, the story back to 1988, um, is in fact a pretty terrific sort of action horror film. Um, what happens in the film is... Uh, Raccoon City is in its death throes. The Umbrella Corporation have all but abandoned the site, but they've left a great deal of uh, horrible mess uh, beneath the surface. Um, the wonderful Chaos... well oh, this is a tough one to say. The wonderful Chaos Scott Elario, plays Claire Redfield. She returns to Raccoon City... Um, to reunite with her brother, Chris, who was a local police officer. Uh, but at the same time, some of the residents that live below Raccoon City that have been left there by the Umbrella Corporation are starting to make their way to the surface. And the the uh, infected gene that is um, overtaking their bodies is creating hordes and hordes of zombies. And, you know, we hate zombie hordes, Dan Barrett. Um so what you get is a, a, a film that has two sets of actions going on. You've got the police uh, stuck in this mansion fighting off um, the emerging zombie madness. You've got Kaya and uh, a couple of uh, other young police officers and an over-the-top Donald Loge as the police chief um, uh, fighting off zombies at the other end of town and they both work their way towards each other for a big final confrontation. Now... The great thing about this film is it actually looks like a film. Um, there isn't any sort of notion that it's it's cut from the the gamer cloth that it comes from a it has its origins in in the world of of gaming. Um, it's quite a it's a beautiful looking film. All of it rain soaked. A lot of sort of neon lights and street lamps lighting things. The monsters themselves, the zombies, are really really effective. Um, and the action scenes, in particular, a helicopter crash that that is really spectacularly staged, um, kind of connect connected with me at least. So, you know, this isn't going to sort of queue up for the Academy Awards, there's no doubt about that, but with a strong female lead, some really good scares, and a terrific-looking production quality to it, Welcome to Raccoon City was a, a real surprise for me. I, I At one point because the storm hit Sydney when I was going to see it. I was going to I I'm out of here. I don't really need to see this film. I was going to bail on the screening. I'm so glad I didn't, because it was such a... a Well, not a pleasant surprise, because it gets a bit bloody at times. But um, it was a good, fun watch. Yeah, I remember you asking me if I wanted to come along
0: to it. I think I told you I was washing my hair that night, whatever (laughs) night it was. But, you know, I do kind of regret. I regret that. I think I would come along.
1: Yeah, and it was funny. I weighed in on social media saying, well, that was a bit of a surprise. That was a whole lot better than I thought it was going to be. And the general feedback was for my critical brethren that yeah it was kind of pretty good so um, hopefully it'll find an audience over the summer period the kids love this sort of stuff and she's an interesting lead actress Kaya Scottolario she was in the um, what was the alligator thing a couple of years ago claw or something like that where she was stuck in the in the basement with the floods coming up and an alligator in there and she's a she's oh, a yeah, really yeah. sort of strong uh, physical um, female lead actress and uh, and she's a certainly a fitting sort of uh, replacement or next generation Milie Jovovich. Let's
0: talk about Sex and the City if we can. We've got the new TV series, and just like that.
2: The more I live, the more I find that if you have good friends in your corner, anything's possible. Carrie, party of three? Future is unwritten because we're all
1: at different stages of life. Tonight, bring your A game.
2: Hey! Come on
1: in! This is X, Y, and me. What about you, Kerry? Have you ever masturbated in a public place? Not since Barney's closed.
0: (laughs) In June of 1998, Kerry, Miranda, Samantha, and Charlotte first appeared on TV with frank conversations about sex and sexuality. They were single women in New York, and they were just going for it. The show landed at the end of a very liberal decade, with the US shaking off the conservatism of Reagan's 1980s and taking on a more youthful, progressive tone led by a new boomer class of media execs and elder Gen X's working beneath them. This was Clinton's America and everything started to take a more open, playful tone, especially when it came to the intermingling of sexuality and feminism. Sex in a City was born of a world where women had taken on words like bitch as a term of self-empowerment. But now we have its sequel series and Just Like That. It has been born into what many see as a more conservative era culturally, but one that's more awake to the many social inequities in the world. Kerry, Miranda, and Charlotte have ditched their friend Samantha, and they're now 50-somethings in New York City, trying to fit in with a culture that's passed them by. Former columnist Kerry is now trying to keep her head above water as a podcast guest, where she nervously giggles her way through sexually frank conversations, no longer having the security blank of a typewriter sitting between her and the audience. Miranda's been awoken to the injustices of the world during the Trump administration, and she's now awkwardly trying to learn how to talk with black people, and Charlotte's now a mother to two girls, one adopted and is just getting by in life. It flips the foundations of Sex in the City entirely on its head. In the original series, these women were setting the norms and values of the culture. Here, they no longer know where their place is in it, and they find that their very white, very outdated 90s attitudes and 90s feminism is no longer seen as acceptable. It's like that Michelin Webb look sketch, where the Nazi soldiers have a moan of self reactualization and ask, Are we the baddies? I've seen very few episodes of the original run of Sex and the City, so I honestly can't speak to whether this is satisfying a watch for fans of the show. But as an outsider stepping in, I found that the show was a little bit clunky, with too much exposition and placemat setting in these first few episodes, as it establishes the new status quo for the characters. But the show is far more self-aware than I'm led to believe that the two Sex and the City movies were. There's also a truth to watching these women in their 50s, who are no longer in step with the momentum of the culture, and there's a fairly interesting show in that, but it does feel that the show is only interested in exploring that idea on a fairly surface level. I'm very much not the audience for this show, and I struggled with how out of step, how dated the show feels, especially in light of watching the far more vital next-generation Sex in the City wannabe shows like Run the World and Harlem in recent months. But this is one that I watched with my mother, who's very much the audience for this show, and she seemed pretty disappointed when I wasn't rushing to press play on episode two. So using that as a metric... If you're a fan who's been with the Sex and the City characters since the 90s, this show hits the mark. For everyone else, eh, (laughs) Simon.
1: (laughs) Um... Now my wife and your friend loves it when I talk about her on the podcast and <laughs> yeah and she did Now I tapped let's just have listened to it I tapped I tapped out before the end of the first episode of this and we turned it on late last night and I was a little bit tired and and you're right for me it seemed very clunky that that opening restaurant scene was just, oh. <laughs> oh boy that was just terrible and then the scene with Big in the kitchen and and so you know, this wasn't, and and I'm kind of like you. I've seen a dozen or so episodes of the original, and I probably, I think I watched both the movies. I certainly saw the first one, um, but the, f- the 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 series just didn't appeal to me. But your friend and my wife, she said. Um, that it gets better. And the two episodes that she watched last night did appeal to her. She still had issues with the way that um, much of what was said and how it was handled by the by the, the, the first two episodes was a, a, a little bit clunky and um, not quite uh, to the standard that the original was um but she's hooked as a, as and and you know Sex and the City is her seinfeld she's the one that she watches that's the show that she watches over and over again so um as the member of the household that uh, is a big Sex and the City fan uh, she seems to be engaged by it at this stage and has hopes for its ongoing um sort of emergence as a as a bit of a time capsule show as well
0: yeah look i think she's right about where it's heading like i can kind of feel the bones of it there but yep. I don't know, it was just so clunky narratively that for me as an outsider, not really for me. I was kind of hoping that that'd re-establish her and give you more of a just entry point into the series for new people. But that's not the case. It's very much for fans to continue their adventures with the story.
1: Dear Evan Hansen is in cinemas right now. It is one of the most maligned films of the year. I got to have a look at it through the week.
2: Have you been doing those letters to yourself with Dr. Sherman? I've been trying to. Have you ever
1: felt like nobody was there? Um, no one's on your cast. Now we can both pretend we
0: are friends.
2: I'm sorry about my brother. Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? I wish
0: everything was different. I wish I was part of something. i Wish that anything I said mattered.
1: Simon, I'm really sorry to hear that you've watched this. But what did you think? <laughs> now. Our relationship with musicals is very different. You, not a fan. Uh, me will take on any musical the more heightened reality and the more effervescent, the um, the happier I am as a man. Um, now, Dear Evan Hansen was a huge Broadway and West End hit. Um, it won Tonys, it won Grammys. The lead actor, Ben Platt, uh, became a, a, a stage star. Uh, after the, the the New York run of Dear Evan Hansen. It tells the story of a socially anxious, um, depressed, nervous young man who uh, is given a task by his therapist to write letters in which he writes them to himself. Dear Evan Hansen, today I will be more confident and meet more people. And it's helping him come out of his shell. Now, he writes one of these letters. It's grabbed by a boy named Connor, um, who then uh, that evening commit suicide. So um, when this letter is found on on Connor, it becomes clear to everyone that his best friend is this nerdy, anxious um, nobody at school called Evan Hansen. And Evan decides to take that as his cue to become more popular to take on the responsibility of bringing happiness to the the son's family, um, played by Danny Pino and Amy Adams, the the uh, boy's sister, played by the wonderful Caitlin Devers, um, all the while trying to deal with his own um, heavy, heavily medicated life and equally anxious mother, played by Julianne Moore. So, you're struck with this very complex moral question as to should he be exploiting the death of this young man to try to bring his own still vibrant life, or still living life, um, into much more focus? And that's what this film struggles with. Um, there is no heightened reality in Dear Evan Hansen, and and it's that heightened reality that often makes that really, for me, does make for the best musicals. This film is set in living rooms, it's set in high school hallways, it's set in principal's offices, in therapist lounge. The breaking into song at these key moments is jarring. The mixture of really sort of dour and demanding thematic elements that are then interspersed with often buoyant songs um, is, is jarring. The casting or the recasting of of uh, Ben Platt as in the lead role, um, by all accounts, he workshopped and created this character from scratch when he was a much younger man. He was 27 when he filmed this movie playing a high school boy. His appearance is jarring. So there's so much about this film that doesn't work and the critics have, have really savaged it. Um, it's not a film that I can write off entirely because... It does take on really challenging subject matter in a format that, that would not normally embrace it, the, the movie musical. And I'm fascinated to... And I never saw it on stage, so I'm fascinated to find out what was lost in translation from the what they were able to do live um, as, a, as, a, as a stage musical to what they haven't been able to do. Director Stephen Ch- and who did um, Perks of Being a Warflower, and Star... Um, ben Platt have done so yeah look it's it's a movie that I've been thinking about a lot I was I was keen to review it because I thought it was going to get on here and be a really fun sort of savaging review of one of the year's worst films and while it doesn't work entirely as a it, it, well it doesn't really work at all as a movie but there's so much sort of interesting aspects of it that it's one of those ones that have sort of slow burned its way into my brain over the last couple of days which I haven't said about a lot of movies this year so in that regard it was kind of interesting, but boy, there's going to be just be so many people who who don't make it through to the end of Dear Evan Hansen. Have you got it queued up to watch, Dan, after that review? Look, I'm not really that keen on checking this out. But the thing with the film
0: is that I think it is much greater that a film is interesting in its failures than just to be boring.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And I'm watching this film and and I keep thinking, oh boy, I was I was so primed to really sort of get the scissors out and just hack into this. But they're trying a whole lot of different things and that's probably why they got people like amy adams and julianne moore and caitlin Devers to to play parts um and the the songs themselves the, there's a there's a couple of really moving songs like the, the song book and the the lyrics and the music is i can absolutely see it working on stage um because they they do sort of take on these tougher bigger issues in song and that's challenging in and of itself so you know, I, it clearly didn't work at the box office. It was a major dud over in the US and, and has crept into cinemas in a few cinemas here in Australia before it heads to the, the, the JB Hi-Fi dump bins. But um, if you do get a chance to watch it and if you want to sort of challenge yourself and maybe see something that you're not expecting, then it's probably worth having a look at in that regard.
0: Simon, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the new David Fincher TV series, Voir.
1: Think of your favourite film.
2: I can remember the exact moment I fell in love with movies, staring up at that big screen, watching the same movie over and over again. That movie changed not just the future of Hollywood, but the lives of an entire generation.
1: Some of our greatest cinema challenges us to really confront our own hearts in the safety of that darkened theatre.
0: Revered director David Finches used his partnership with Netflix to produce personal film work like Mank, TV shows driven by his interest in a dark, intensive man like Mindhunter, and a series of visually rich shorts in the form of Love, Sex and Robots, which have strong echoes to his early work as one of the defining voices in the world of MTV music videos. His latest project is Another Indulgence, but like his previous Netflix indulgences, I'm very much there to see what this has to offer. This one's called Voir, which is French for C. Voir, it's a series of six film video essays in which film critics and historians talk about film-related ideas. Critic Sasha Stone ruminates on the role of Jaws as it defined her teenage years as a cinema lover and how it changed not only her outlook on the world, but the cinema industry itself. Walter Chaw explores the importance of the race dynamic found in the Eddie Murphy-Nick Nolsey film 48 Hours And then there's others exploring ideas of TV versus film, unlikable characters on the screen, the creation of appealing women in animation, and the ethics of the film Lady Vengeance. It's all deep dive film nerd business, the likes of which appeals to the very audience who'd likely listen to a podcast like this very podcast. Every installment has an entirely different visual sensibility to it, matching the very topics on screen. And with most of them running between 17 to 20 something minutes, each video essay runs at a fairly breezy comfortable length to watch, and the idea of bringing a series like this to Netflix is smart and welcome, but I have to admit, I didn't really find any of them especially engaging. There's something slightly off about the presentation. The essayists for each episode come off as though they are talking to themselves and not the audience, and a direct connection is never quite forged, which means the audience never really quite connects. And my thinking with this is that they're all worth a look for film enthusiasts, but casual viewers won't really find much to grasp onto here, but maybe I have that wrong, Maybe the casual viewer will find more to grasp onto as they find their way into film theory through the show. Simon, you've taken a look at the show. What did you think? I know you're a bit more into it than I was.
1: Yeah, look, I sat through all the the, the whole six episodes in one big binge. Um, yes, as a as a film critic um, and as a and as someone who adores cinema, I I absolutely uh, connected with the way most of these segments were done. I I love the take that. Sasha Stone took on, the, um, on her, her relationship with Jaws and its impact on
0: her. I hated that so much. No, I thought I that thought, was
1: terrific. I thought that was a, I that's thought an interesting an essay,
0: for- it was disjointed and just no, did not actually land what she was trying to get to.
1: I totally the, got it. I, I felt part of that- the
0: big problem with that, part of the problem, part of the why, reason why I said that there's a disconnect between the essayist and the person watching is that they keep on showing Sasha Stone, uh, like the actual Sasha Stone and not the actor playing Sasha Stone as like a youngster. But they show her sitting in the cinema, but you never actually see her. She's always there in shadows and like blurry sort of things. So it's really removing her away from the essay, which is weird because it's a personal essay she's delivering. So why hide her from her words? That's
1: interesting because they use that device through the rest of the series. Critic Drew Mm -hmm. uh, McQueenie comes on as well, and when he does his... Segment. Uh, I think his one is about the, ven- the uh, vengeance cinema and the, the, what you mentioned about uh, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. He looks at the the ethics and politics and structure of, of vengeance and revenge cinema, which is but really the interesting. The
0: difference there is that that's not a personal essay. Sure. For Sasha Stone, that's a personal essay. And so
1: what are you even doing, taking the person out of the essay? Well, that's interesting because then you get to the last episode, the one about 48 Hours, which I think is the best of the bunch, and the role that that film, the Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte film, um, how at the time it tackled in within the language of action cinema racism and is now considered by many to be one of the, sort of the the studio system's most uh, hotly debated and heated sort of discussion of racism in in American culture. Um, there's no image of the the person doing the essay. It's just his voice mm. relating all the the um, images in the film i I found that topic terrific i thought the animation one which probably should have been the most buoyant and lively was a little bit dry um i loved the but i don't like him episode which looks at protagonists who are interesting but not entirely likable and they boil that down to almost the entire martin scorsese (laughs) list of filmography in which all his characters including arguably his masterpiece uh, Raging Bull features one of the most unlikable people ever put on cinema Um, so yeah look I really really dug these they're just right at about 20 minutes Um, they keep this they keep the the ideas flowing they keep the images flowing so it's great to see all these um, sort of grabs from from films um, that I've loved over the years so yeah I really dug this and you're absolutely right I think if you're listening to screen watching you probably should be having a look at Voir.
0: And just to give a bit of a wrap as to where people can see the things we've been talking about. And just like that, the Sex in a City sequel series that's currently streaming in Australia on Binge, but HBO Max in the US. Wire, as I mentioned, is currently streaming on Netflix. And then also the French Dispatches in cinemas. And the two films you discussed, both in cinemas, being Raccoon City, Resident Evil, something something.
1: <coughs> And Dear Evan Hansen, they're both in cinemas now. So I should also mention that also in cinemas this week, the big Netflix movie, uh, their Boxing Day release, Don't Look Up, starring a who's who of Hollywood uh, celebrities from Leo DiCaprio and uh, Jennifer Lawrence and to Jonah Hill and Meryl Streep and Ariana Grande. I read a piece during the week that the Academy should be looking at Ariana Grande for the... A supporting actress nomination—that'll change things up. Um, it's called "Don't Look <laughs> Up." It's how it's how the world looks and deals with a, a pending comet disaster. Um, two and a half hours long, which seems just daunting to me. I didn't have time to watch it this week. Uh, in a selection of cinemas now, as part of the Australian cinema network's new relationship with netflix which might be worth looking at in weeks to come also in cinemas yeah, you, know what, you know what really
0: bothers me about it so yeah. the reason why i would want to go and see a netflix movie in the cinema is to see it in a way that i can't see it on the screen at home which yes. is to see it on the biggest possible screen with the biggest possible sound and yeah anytime these films are released into like your event cinemas like the more recent netflix uh, release in cinemas seems to be going to events like red notice the was two weeks ago and now yeah. we've got this they're not playing in a big screen. Like, they're just playing on sort of smaller screens where they can program them in. And I understand cinema's not wanting to give over too much to Netflix, but also the only reason I'm there is to see it on a big, crazy-ass screen. And if I'm watching on a small screen, why don't I just get close to my TV at home?
1: <laughs> Look, I, I agree. Um, I think you're either in or you're not if you start an uh, event and Hoyt Cinema's um, dealing with the devil here by putting Netflix in their in their cinemas. If you're going to promote it, promote it big. Now, I, and, and I'm speaking a little bit off the record here, so I won't mention any names. I had a meeting with a, a, an executive from Event Cinemas yesterday with regard to the, um, some stuff going on in the future for me. But he made exactly the same point that they're bound by certain conditions as to their release. Um, and the number of screens and the number of sessions they can put it on uh, as part of their relationship with Netflix. But he said the same thing. He said, why not just make it the biggest film in Australia for two weeks and then send it to Netflix? It would be a win-win situation for all. Um, but apparently that's not how it's how it's playing out in cinemas. I'm grateful to see Don't Look Up on the, on the kind of big screen, but you're right, <laughs> without the VMAX bump, um, it's, uh, it's sort of going at it a bit half-heartedly, unfortunately
0: yeah and look my relationship with cinemas keeps on deteriorating and sitting in a cinema watching dune on saturday afternoon last week with teenagers screaming out from the back row daddy 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 at their friends for about 45 minutes with the staff not doing anything to stop these kids like frankly why am i going to the movies to be interrupted like that on a regular how great is the cinema experience simon
1: how great is it hey um if you're worried about Someone screaming, daddy, 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 while you're trying to watch a movie. You're in for a fun <laughs> okay. next 10 years.
0: <laughs> but look, I mean, the thing is, like, they're not little kids. And I don't uh. pay $25 to go and see my daughter. Unfortunately, I get to see her at 3 o'clock in the morning, like, for free of charge.
1: <laughs> Coming down the track, you'll also get to take your little one to a movie like Henchman, which is a pretty chintzy um, animated film which is also in cinemas this week this is uh, one of the distributors I think it's Studio Canal, I'm not sure who are trying to make a few bucks with an animated film over Christmas but it's been around for a couple of years strong voice cast, people like James Marsden and Jane Krakowski and Alfred Molina are in there um, clearly sort of grabbing a few bucks but this is that very sort of kind of eye-gouging CGI computer style laptop effect work that, that makes it a bit tough to watch these sort of films unfortunately which brings us to the high watermark for this podcast, uh, maybe ever. To have someone like Bibi Newworth <laughs> step into uh, the screen-watching studios to talk to Mr. Dan Barrett is a huge get. Um, give us some background as to, to what she's starring, how the interview came about, and, and what we can expect from the, the wonderful Miss Newirth.
0: Yeah, so she's starring this new AMC Plus series called Ultra City Smiths, Ultra City Smiths is an animated series from Steve Conrad's The Writer. Steve Conrad is a guy behind a really well-critically-loved series called Patriot, which aired on, well-streamed via Amazon Prime Video recently. Critics loved it, audiences just did not find the show. I've seen the first couple of episodes, and I keep meaning to get back to it, because it's really fun, sharp, and just, it's actually really interesting. He's he's been hired as the new writer for the Game of Thrones spin-off series, Egg and Crown, I think it's called. I don't have it in front of me, and I'm a big Game of Thrones guy, so I'm not quite sure. Um, Egg and something. Uh, But he's going to be running that show, so he's off to do some very big things with that. But he's recently done a show for AMC+. It's a six-episode animated series where it's stop-motion with little baby dolls effectively, but it's a nineteen forty style crime noir detective film with some police at the center. There's a very large lady wrestler played by BB Newirth in there. Uh it's I, I don't want to give too much away and I'm gonna review this in full, like probably on I don't know if it'll be next week's show or the one afterwards. Uh it's on AMC plus and the people are really getting around to it. So I've probably got a few weeks before we really need to get onto the review. It's such a busy time period Simon. But I want to go in deep on the show. I watched a couple of episodes because I knew I'd be chatting with BB. I didn't expect that much from it, but this quietly, it's made my top ten of the year. Like this is such a knockout show. It is completely just—it's enveloped my interest. All I can think about right now is Ultra City Smiths. <laughs> it's, and when you've got so and when you've unusual, got the, it's so interesting.
1: And when you've got the distinctive voice talents and incredible presence, even. Just the audio presence of B.B. Newworth, as you'll hear in this interview, is is just wonderful. From her incredible stage work through her iconic TV performances, she's one of um, American entertainment's uh, absolute icons and absolute joys. Uh, I can't wait to hear this interview, mate. Yeah, I got
0: an email from the team at AMC and they're like, hey guys, do you want to have a chat with anyone, the voice talents from Ultra City Smiths? And I'm like looking through the list of people that were offered to us <laughs> and like, first of all, I was going, oh my God, I can talk to that person or that person or that person. And then I saw B.B. Newarth and I was wearing a hat and it literally blew right <laughs> off my head. And I think I need to change the air vents in the house because there's clearly something going on. But anyway, Simon, here's my chat with B.B. Newarth, um, star of Ultra City Smiths, but also dear to my heart a cast member from the tv show cheers
2: recording in progress oh okay baby
0: <laughs> hello how you doing
2: <laughs> i'm okay i'm a little frazzled i'm so sorry that i was late my day just ran away from me and um I'm, i've been chasing it for a while so <laughs>
0: <laughs> how, how many years
2: <laughs> yes exactly
0: Eric right, baby, it is an absolute delight to have a chat with you. Ultra City Smiths. I watched this and it really surprised me. It was so much more strange and wonderful and engaging than I really expected. I knew it would be good, but man, it is really quite a show. Uh, But I was really interested in the role that you're playing in it. So you're a song and dance professional. And in the show, you're playing a different type of physical performer. You're playing a wrestler. And she's got a very (laughs) different body shape to your own. And I was wondering what drew you to the role specifically, but also where the physicality of being able to play roles so far from yourself is a draw card to doing this kind of animation voice work.
2: In terms of the difference in physicality, I mean, that that is one of the wonderful things about doing um, voiceover animation or how, however it, it's a stop, a stop action or however they do it is um, being able to voice anything. You know, I've I've played cats and i've played dogs and i've played <laughs> you know and and now i've played a giant lady wrestler so um that's uh, you know you have a lot of um you're open to a lot more casting options <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if it's not live
0: yeah i mean you uh, call her a giant lady wrestler like lady andrea the giant she is quite a big she, lady
2: she is she <laughs> is but i i love um You asked what drew me uh, to the project and I, you know, I read the script and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And um, the idea of stop action baby dolls was just so (laughs) fun. That was just fabulous. That's just hilarious. And what I loved when I, um, when I started working was being directed to be as gentle, and it, she's so um, her personality and her her energy is so quiet and soft and gentle, and I I love that juxtaposition to this. You know, you think, oh, it's a big, late, giant lady wrestler. Oh, maybe she talked. No she's like she has this very soft and loving and sweet and i just thought it's brilliant it's just a brilliant direction um to be uh taken
0: i, I always wonder when you sign up for a project like this where it's such a unique project it is unlike anything i've really seen on tv in some time when you're ever forever <laughs> well, really i mean ever. <laughs> But when you're signing off for something like this, do they show you sort of animatics? Like you're able to see sort of visually what it might look like, or are you going purely off the script alone? Uh, I think it was,
2: a, uh, I, I think it was at first it was just the script. Mm. It was just the script and the, and and saying we're using baby dolls and animation, <laughs> and that was the stop action baby dolls. And that was <laughs> that was enough for me. And then, you know, to say yes. And then later I, I saw... Um, not like a cartoon where they have a drawing of it, but there was, um, there was a little bit of a roughed out of something that I did see, and uh, you know, just o- only confirmed my enthusiasm and, <laughs> and exponentially increased it.
0: <laughs> now you're not really a stranger to doing animated voice work, but I was wondering how that changes your work as a live physical performer, if at all. So do you actually consider voice then, while you're doing live action, a little bit more than you may have otherwise?
2: No. No, it's, um, they're, they are different, they are different <laughs> animals. Um, they are, you know, acting is acting, r- regardless of what you're doing. I could be, you know, in a ballet without speaking. I could be in a Shakespeare play. I could be in a, in a musical. Acting is acting is acting. But um, the, the medium is, is a switch. So there are different um, technical things come into play you know, different technical things when you're in front of a camera than when you're on a stage um, and different technical things when it's just your voice that's working. I, I know when I first started doing animation, I was a little surprised at how accentuated I was getting directed to be in, in different ways. And I thought, oh, well, because it's just the voice. This piece, uh, Ultra City Smiths, is not like that. That's This is much more like really voicing a real you might as well being on on stage or on, in a film or something it's it's not like um, generally the way cartoon acting is although that said you know come to think of it cartoon acting has shifted quite a lot since I don't know 25 years ago when I did it the first time it was it was a lot more exaggerated than you get a lot more naturalistic um kind of speaking now in animated um, yeah
0: the it, number of subtle so performances in the show is really quite incredible
2: yes yeah
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, now I'm going to ask a really rote question so I apologize for that really in advance
2: question? a really what question a really
0: rote question just a little bit obvious and
2: I I didn't know what word you just used
0: uh wrote, rote uh like a very obvious uh oh, oh, a, a dull question so I apologize for the question know, I'm going to ask I know,
2: I know. <laughs> I just... I got caught up. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Now, I apologise for asking this, but I'm actually really, really curious about this. So, I'm in the middle of a Cheers rewatch at the moment. So, I've just reached the point where you've kind of entered the show. So, you've been around for about a season-ish and guess sort of star performance uh, sort of levels. And what really struck me is that you came into it as the perfect character in Cheers at the exact right time for the show. In that you contrasted against all the other characters perfectly... Including including Frasier, who's a bit of a contrast against everyone else already by himself. And I'm wondering for you when you came into the show, the character is so fully formed in terms of what she would be as the character continues on. Like she evolves a little bit, but she is absolutely there from that first moment. I was wondering how much that's on the page and how much it's you finding the character. And I'm especially curious about this because I know it was a very early TV role for you. So you're probably a little bit nervous coming into it, but you knocked it out of the park straight away. So I'm just kind of curious how you came to it.
2: Well, uh, thank you. Um, It was like this, my second job on television. Um, And it was, it was just one scene in one episode Mm. is what it was supposed to be. Um, It was just that one bad date that went wrong. He had a a long uh, episode with Jennifer Tilly and, um, and they, uh, they decided that they really liked what, happened to fraser's character when he was with uh my character this character this new character of lilith he really liked what lilith did to producers liked what lilith did to fraser and they thought this is something that's really interesting and worth investigating you know because it was it challenged the fraser part and it was it was an unusual role. Certainly, Lilith was a very unusual kind of a part for television. So it's really a testament to the um, to the writers and the producers of developing that relationship and who Lilith was. I can say this about um, about the character and and what happened to her. Uh, I had when I auditioned for it. I had never auditioned for a part that was described the way this one was described. I was, you know, I'd come from, and I was in the middle of doing a Broadway show. And it's usually I was playing, the, you know, these tough broads, tough, sexy, hard, of, you know, tough as nails, heart of gold, dance is great, you know, belts a sea, kind of, uh, kind of part leads best friend. And then I got this, description of the part as being really buttoned up and very repressed and you could count the comb marks in her hair and all that and I thought I I I've never auditioned what am I gonna and I started to try to figure out and I came up with a voice and a sort of a, an idea that made me laugh so I did that as my audition from the audition I'm going to try to make this as quick as possible from the <laughs> <Yeah>. audition <laughs> I I was dressed for the audition and I had a Uh, shirt that was with a button-up collar, and I had slicked my hair back in my ballet bun that I've been wearing my whole life to ballet class. And I went to the audition. They said, you got the part. They took me to the first read-through. So I was there in the read-through meeting everyone in the cast. And then they said, okay, go home for lunch and come back in an hour. I went home, I took my hair down. This was 1985, I think. So I would put on my purple satin shirt and my black leather miniskirt and I came back to work dressed as myself (laughs) and they went (laughs) and in fact Ted Danson introduced himself he said "Uh, my name's Ted I said yes we met this morning because I I, uh, am so different from the character and I presented and looked so different from the character and I think that when the producers and the writers saw that they went and there's another thing we can do with Lilith and and that is to have her have this side that is wild and um you know which is maybe <laughs> more like me
0: <laughs> uh you've got Kelsey Grammer looking at bring back Fraser for a third series could there be a place of Lilith on the new show at all
2: But that's a question for Kelsey. You know, they've been talking about that. I've been hearing this rumor for, it's been over two years I've been hearing this rumor. So I don't know. Okay.
0: Um, Well, yeah, I'm I'm getting on the phone to him. We're going to make this happen. So look, Cheers is maybe the greatest sitcom of all time. You know, no pressure on that one at all. Uh, But why, sorry, uh, I'm getting flustered now. Just thinking about, um, okay. Cheers is maybe the greatest sitcom of all time which is why too many years later you're talking some guy in australia about it still is it a burden for you still being asked about the role so regularly
2: uh it's not a burden for me you know i I will say when it it's never been a burden for me Mm. never been a burden that said when it first was happening and and shortly after i was doing it i did make a lot of difficult well uh, tricky decisions in what to do Um, and what jobs to take because as you might imagine I did get offered a lot of very intelligent uptight characters that Mm. didn't have a sense of humor and you know some of them were okay but a lot of them were sort of a pale comparison to I mean Lilith the, the Cheers writers were just spectacular and so if somebody tried to do that it just kind of it, it wasn't as good. And I also wanted, I worked very, very hard to not get typecast. I mean, I'm going to get cast, uh, you know, a, a certain way, everybody gets cast a certain way, but I didn't want to get pigeonholed into that all the time. So when you say, was it a burden? No, it wasn't a burden, but I did have to work extra hard at this one thing. Yeah. Um, and I guess I should have taken it as a compliment. It's like everybody loves Lilith. So we want a Lilith too <laughs> on our show and I go, you gotta get somebody else. Cause I did it already. <laughs>
0: yeah. That seems to be a problem faced by a lot of the cast cheers, uh, a lot of the cheers cast members. So I mean, Ted Danson yes. was fighting against that for his high career post cheers and sure. Yeah. Sure.
2: yeah, I mean, it's, you know, television is is huge and, and cheers was the number one show for a couple of years and it was on for 11 years or whatever and you know it's it's so present in people's minds that you really have to um it it's it's a double-edged thing sharp object because it's great on the other hand you gotta there's some some things i just can't do
0: yeah uh, there's something so indelible about that show. It's such a part of I know sort of my psyche as a TV viewer where I was fine talking to you until I started talking about cheers. And then suddenly I found myself getting very nervous talking to you about it. It's just it's it's such a primal thing. It's yeah.
2: You were probably a little kid also when it when it was on. You were you were young enough, so that was part of your childhood and part of
0: you oh, know. Look, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is one of these things where I was probably 12 years old when I first found Cheers in the final sort of two or three years of that show's run, but it's one of my main shows. It's like a fundamental building block of me as a consumer. But look, yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna leave you there. I've got one more question for you, though, so I'm getting to wind up here. Um, you've guested on so many shows over the years, and I was wondering how that early success playing Lilith has changed the way that you approach these guest roles. And are you ever going into them thinking that the role could be a little bit more than just being a one-shot? So, for example, there's no reason that Judge Friend from The Good Fight couldn't lead a spinoff, for example. And does that sort of frame the way that you think about these roles going forward?
2: Um, you know, it was such a bizarre thing when, when to me, it was such a bizarre and surprise that they wanted to keep asking, you know, they kept asking me to come back and ask me to come back, and then they offered me a contract to actually be on the show. I was so surprised by that, that I, I, I never would expect that to happen again. Mm. I mean, I guess it might, um, and I guess it does happen. Um, but to me, it was so unusual. And as I said, I was in the middle of doing a Broadway show. I was doing sweet charity and we had done it in California and we were taking some time off before we brought it back to Broadway because Debbie Allen, our star was finishing up her television show Fame at the time. So, I was really in a certain mindset and I never thought about doing television at all. So, now when I do it it's just like I love playing Claudia Friend, Judge Claudia Friend, whose politics are fantastic but her hands are tied by the law. So, <laughs> I I love doing that. Would I is it enough for a spin-off? I don't think it's enough. I I don't think you would spin it off. You would bring her back because she's interesting and that's great. I love going back and doing it, but no, the, the short answer <laughs> is, is better than me rambling probably. So now I don't think about, oh, this could turn into something regular.
0: <laughs> Look, I'm happy to hear your rainbow for hours, but I'm getting a wider <laughs> So I've got to get out of here. So I'm going to note that Ultra City Smiths that's streaming now on AMC+. Plus.
2: Ultra City Smiths. Fantastic. That's my favorite
0: show. I'm putting That's together my top 10 list of the year and quietly, this is making the list. So I'm, <laughs> I'm so high on this show. It's very good. But BB New Earth, it has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Now, Simon, as I mentioned, Ultra City Smiths streaming now on AMC plus AMC plus it's a bit hard to be able to find. It's not something you can stream like directly to your phone. You need to subscribe via Amazon prime video channels or Apple TV channels so you've got to go through one of those two venues to access it. But let me tell you, this is worth signing up for it. I'm very high on this one. We wind out every episode with a look at the week ahead, the new and returning TV shows and movies that are debuting around the place. Let's kick things off looking at streaming. Simon, Play-Doh Squished.
1: I've missed this one. What is it? I know. This is very exciting. When you leave me in charge of the running sheet, this is what happens. Play-Doh Squished is on Anna anab- anab- Play-Doh Squished is on Amazon Prime. Now, in much the same way that they've reinvented and reinvigorated the Lego brand with that Lego building show that's everywhere, um, Play-Doh have jumped on board. This is a holiday-themed reality competition special set in a Play-Doh winter wonderland. It's hosted by the lovely Sarah Hyland, who we know from Modern Family. um, And basically, it's doing amazing things with Play-Doh. Play-Doh Squished on Amazon Prime. And over on Netflix, this is right in my ballpark, Saturday Morning All-Star Hits. Two characters, Skip and Traybor, both played by Kyle Mooney from Saturday Night Live, celebrate all that is 80s and 90s morning television. Um, There is stuff on here that I have no recollection of, but I know at some point I must have watched. Um, It's kind of like a highlights clip of of our childhood. So um, it's called Saturday Morning All-Star Hits. It's on Netflix right now. Yeah,
0: I get the feeling it's a bit of a nostalgia push in the same way that people have really gotten into things like the movies that made us. And
1: Yep, I think that's exactly what it is. Plus, it's all done in um, the aspect ratio, so it's like the TVs we had back then, which were just square boxes. Um, and Four it's by got, three. <laughs> and it's got that awesome sort of uh, grainy video, early video quality to it as well. So they've put a lot of love into this, you can tell.
0: Look, if at any point they reference Shirt tails, I'll be very excited. <laughs> That's, Do you know Shirt Tales? Yeah, it's the second time we've mentioned Shirt Tales on the show, isn't it? Oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think
1: it was. <laughs>
0: it, it's one of these shows that ran for 13 episodes in like 1985 on NBC in the US. And I just managed to watch it here in Australia where Channel 9 Master replayed played it a whole bunch of times. And I thought it was a long-running show that went for years and years. But it turns out that dumb child me was just watching the same 13 episodes over and over again.
1: <laughs> you know what? I was listening to a podcast through the week called The um the movies that never got made or something like that. It's, it's quite an interesting podcast. And they were talking to a guy who was about to write a new version of who, who at one point in the mid uh, to late 80s and then again in the mid to late 90s was trying to get a, an episode of the Jetsons, an uh, uh, adaptation of the Jetsons off the ground like they did with the Flintstones and like they did with the Adams Family. There was only ever yeah. 25 episodes of the Jetsons made that was j- much like Shirt Tiles, was just repeated over and over again, which I didn't
0: know. Yes, but... The reason why it seems like there were so many is that the show went back into production, I think, in the early 80s, and they made a whole bunch more episodes. Yes, they did mention that. As you and I have been watching it on TV over the years, it's a show that seemed like it had a lot more episodes than it ever did. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, because the episodes got made, just not in that original run.
1: Some interesting movies debuting on streaming this week. Uh, A movie called Encounter, which I saw a couple of months ago as part of my science fiction film festival um, duties. It's called Encounter. Amazon Prime have it. Riz Ahmed who's sort of the hot thing at the moment. He plays a PTSD suffering ex-soldier who Takes his two sons on a cross country road trip because he thinks, and maybe he's right, that alien life forms are infecting mankind and affecting humans everywhere. So um, it's a kind of a domestic drama, but also wrapped in a little bit of a sci fi thing as well. So um, it was really good. Riz Ahmed is terrific. And on Netflix is Back to the Outback um, about a group of Australia's deadliest creatures who escape a reptile house. With, as part of their plan to escape from their zoo, Back to the Outback. Strong voice cast here, Jackie Weaver, Guy Pearce, and Isla Fisher amongst the, uh, the uh, cast voice cast there. Back to the Outback is actually eligible for the um, Academy Award Animated Oscar. It's part of the 30-odd films that were announced this week, so probably worth having a look at this Netflix uh, acquisition.
0: Yeah, and worth noting, just because the logline for it sounds like it could be a really brutal horror film just as much as it could be a kid's movie, this is very much a kid's movie with cute animals.
1: Very much a kid's movie, yes. Animated film, so one for the holidays. Hey, Simon, take us to Brisbane. What have we got happening at Goma? In your part of the world, the beautiful Brisbane Goma, The Gallery of Modern Art have released their summer Cinematheque program. They have three strands which launched this week, uh, December fourth. They're showing the Magic Arts: Australian animation from the 1970s to now, which is a huge retrospective of animated uh, works—feature, short, commercial, uh, independent um, animation—all getting their their due. The next one is new filmmaking across Asia and the Pacific. This is a lot of often unheralded cinema from Asia Pacific nations, Um, a lot of hidden gems that rarely get a look see in, in in any part of the world outside of their own um and also australian next wave this is a selection of of australian debut feature films from 2017 to present that reflect work by artists who are right at the forefront of local independent filmmaking so the goma um, offering lots to see much of it free um from december 4 so that's already happened but right through to april 22 yeah, look, the
0: Goma, Goma tag I think, is one of the great resources for film fans in this country. Like, it's just an incredible uh, set of programs that are running each year. Now, something which we probably need to mention is a few of the titles that are playing, Simon, because it sounded maybe a little bit dry in terms of the overall subjects, but uh, just think about the animation, like, amongst the many titles that you're going to find uh, in terms of animation, there's things like Mary and Max playing Babe, Pig in the City, so they're doing just as much computer animation as much as they are. Uh, you know traditional sort of animations they absolutely Uh, happy feats playing uh titles like that what else have we got here so there's the under the radar which is the new filmmaker across asia and the pacific yeah look i want to point Uh, out a film
1: there there's a a hawaiian film in there called waikiki which looks at the indigenous hawaiian populations experience as um sort of white influence spread across the country there has been some huge praise for this film um christopher Mahahuwana, I hope I got that right. Apologies if I didn't. Um, is getting a lot of buzz about this film. They're looking at it as a, as sort of a once were warriors for the for the um, indigenous population of Hawaii. So that's definitely worth seeing. And yeah, looking at this, it looks like it's a fairly contemporary film, which is looking at the way
0: that life's happening behind the tourist facade of what we know of Hawaii. Mm. So it's kind of interesting. Simon, this week in history. December 12, 1977,
1: Saturday Night Fever starring John Travolta premiered in New York City. Wow, didn't that make a splash? That is exciting stuff. Were you a disco? You got you. Well, you would have been too young to sort of real get the tail into the disco era, weren't you? Look, Simon, you've known me for a few years. Have you ever seen me
0: getting around not wearing my flares and disco jumpsuit? You make a valid point. Never. That's true, yeah. Hey, December 14, 2017, you had the Walt Disney Company buying most of the 20th Century
1: Fox for... $52.4 billion oh, boy. with a capital B. Yeah, big capital B. December 15, 1997, Spice World starring the Spice Girls premieres in the UK. I will not hear a bad word about Spice World. It is one of the funniest, most enjoyable films I've seen. And boy, You will not hear a bad word about that film from me. Thank you very much. Love it. Love it. December 15, a huge day weddings 1984 olivia newton john and matt latanzi remember him god bless um he they got married 1985 sylvester stallone and bridget Nielsen got married and in 1990 Rod stewart and rachel hunter these were the who magazine covers of my era these were the, the 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 tabloid megastars of my youth so uh i don't think it worked out too well for any of them but that's okay Oh, Stallone's doing okay. Stallone this week announced to his first ever TV series. Yeah, that is exciting. Uh, who was There's some major talent involved behind the scenes, some showrunner. I can't remember. I should have researched that. But yeah, I got very excited about it. Yeah, you really should have. <laughs> hey, let's talk about some birthdays.
0: Uh, I can tell you who the showrunner is, but let's just not. Bit of a surprise for you to watch in a few months' time. Hey, birthdays, December 12, 1970. You got Twin Peaks star Matchin Amick. Is that how you pronounce it? I've always just seen it written.
1: Well, with the little thing over the A there, it's Miedchen. Miedchen Amik. Miedchen. She played Shelley on the original Twin Peaks, and I think she returned for the the recent redo, didn't she? She was born in Nevada. The very um, terrific actor, Steve Buscemi, uh, who we all know from Fargo and so many other wonderful things, including Billy Madison. He was born in New York City in 1957. (laughs) Your favourite Australian, December 14, 1979. You can say the name. Oh, look, I... I'm just blowing that we've got this
0: person of this talent and magnitude on the list here. But Sophie Monk, born in London. I didn't
1: know she was I didn't know she was from London. Is that is that my I didn't bad? know that she was older than I am, but sure. <laughs> and then one of the greats of American television, December 16, forty three, may you rest in peace. The great Stephen Botchko, TV producer who did Hill Street Blues, LA Law, NYPD Blue, born in New York City. Um Bochco obviously um a legend, an icon in, in the international television scene.
0: Yeah, absolutely defined the medium a number of times. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah. Simon, we're going to sign off in just a moment, but let's do a little bit of forward sizzle for next week's episode. Ooh, because Simon, it is such a blockbuster of an episode. We use the phrase jokingly on the show, too much show. Oh boy, but, but next week. Next week. Come on. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so... Letting people know, myself and Simon have a logistical challenge next week. Yes. And it's going to be reflected a little bit in the audio that you listen to. It is a week where literally Simon and I are going to be on the run all week, being able to catch up with a number of screeners and screenings happening around the place. So it's going to be a disjointed episode next week. You're going to hear us doing various sort of solo reports from around the place. It's the only way we can really make this happen logistically. Yeah. Yep. We've got, Simon, you're going to be looking at West Side Story, Yeah, Steven Spielberg We've got production.
1: West Side Story. We've got a night, like every night next week we're seeing movies and then after the movies we'll be recording the interviews, then getting them somehow sort of smashed together in what we hope will resemble a podcast <laughs> by the end of the whole mess. Um, but it's as you say, it's a crazy way to do it. West Side Story, then we're both going to, what, what's the other one we're seeing? So we're seeing Being the Ricardos, oh, which is yes. the Amazon Prime movie. With Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem as as Lucy and Ricky, yeah, uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Yes, uh, you'll be seeing uh, Spider Man: No Way Home, uh, which I know you're yes. very excited about. We've got the AMC. So very keen, very keen. We've got the AMC Plus series Firebite. We also hope to have an interview with Warwick Thornton, the great director who's involved with Firebite as well. <sighs> also, if people don't know Firebite, this is a Australian vampire series. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. We've got all the uh, special event cinema and the week in history and birthdays to put together as well. So we are going to go a little bit crazy next week. Look, it is a big one. But
0: anyway, Simon Foster, before we get to that, we need to wind up this podcast and live our lives for a little bit. So let's go and do that. Thank you very much for listening to Screen Watching. I'm Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan TheDanBarrett. Start your day with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching, and you can find that at AlwaysBeWatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film, And on Fridays, the Always Be Streaming newsletter or accounts the big shows that launch that week.
1: I'm on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster One. Uh, You can read my words over at Screen Space dot net. Please go to the Screen Watching Facebook page at Screen Watching Podcast to uh, find out all sorts of entertainment information, and check out our Screen Watching YouTube channel where you'll see lots of uh, fascinating video content. Some of our interviews, some of our special episodes are all up there to have a look at.
0: Yeah, and you can follow screen watching via your favorite podcast app. Load it up now. Hit the follow or subscribe button, whatever your app does. Hit the button. The new podcast just keep on flowing on in.
1: So I need to rest up before we try to do next week's episode because I'm old and this is going to exhaust me. So I'm going to go and have a lie down. Rest up, but also do your stretches. (laughs) got to do my stretches if I don't do my stretches. And also, um, God bless... Uh, the people of Fox Sports I've, the uh, summer of cricket has kicked off I'll be watching Ash's cricket now until yeah. Uh, Dan wake up the cricket's on Dan uh, the what? cricket's on what <laughs> see you mate
0: Simon it's been a pleasure we'll talk next week